everyone, and welcome back to Then Again, the podcast of the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Marie Bartlett, the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here, and today our guest is Dr. Dennis Alley. Yeah, I can't say how happy and delighted I am to be here with you today and talk a little bit about the ancient past and ancient coinage. So, Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? No, not at all. So my name is Dennis Alley. I'm a scholar of Classics. I work, uh, you know, in a wide range of uh, fields and issues. My primary research, you know, what I have my PhD in is in ancient Greek literature. So this is actually how I came to ancient coinage was through the field of Greek um, lyric poetry. So lyric poetry is uh, a really fascinating field of study in that um, we don't have a lot of it. There's very little. So when you're, you're dealing with ancient lyric poetry, you're very much forced to use and confront you know, multiple sources, as many as you can find sometimes, and especially in the case of myth. So when I was writing my dissertation about you know, 10 years ago now, I was uh, working on an ancient Greek city-state by the name of Cyrene. And Cyrene is a, a very fascinating place in that it's a Greek city-state that was on the north, you know, the Mediterranean coast of North Africa in modern-day Libya. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that it was, you know, in terms of population, size, wealth, power, one of the largest Greek city-states, we actually have the least information about it. It's, it's an interesting problem that we deal with in the Greek world that uh, many of our sources tend to be very intensely Athena-centric which is to say they're interested in Athens and not much else. But uh, those of us who are interested in the larger Greek world know that there was a lot going on in places other than Athens. Uh, you know, Syracuse, for instance, the Sicilian powerhouse, uh, was in fact the largest democracy in the Greek world, population-wise, size-wise. Had some troubles keeping the lights on. It tended to go back and forth between democracy and tyranny. But uh, in terms of population, size, structure, all of these things, it was by far the largest we don't hear a lot about that because our sources are predominantly Athenian. Uh, so it was a struggle to kind of understand this poorly understood city-state that drove me to look at coinage, where I became quite fascinated by how useful these tools are for understanding the past and engaging with them and learning about it in a very practical, hands-on you know, way. So that's that's what brought me to this. It's a little bit about me. And, uh, well, we're going to be talking about coinage. So I look forward to it. So I do not know that much about coins. My husband has developed quite the interest in collecting coins. So I know some about that through through him. And what surprises me is how there are some coins that seem to exist more, and particularly Roman coins. They seem to exist far more and there we have more of them today than lots of other coins from other times and other places. So why why do we have so many Roman coins today? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. Well, it's it's a fantastic question that we can answer in a lot of ways. So when we think about, you know, when we talk about what is Roman, what does it mean to be Roman? Well, we have to look at the fact that the city-state that grew into the empire, the powerhouse of Rome itself, existed for you know the better part of 500 years before it really reached that imperial status. So not the entirety of that time, but a good portion of it, it was creating currency of some form. So for about 300 years, 200 years, even before it gets to that status of being an imperial powerhouse, it's creating coinage. And then, of course, once it reaches that status, it's you know engaging with the entirety of the Mediterranean world, has to create a lot of coinage. 
because as an imperial power, monitoring trade currency, making it as easy as possible to happen within that imperial apparatus becomes crucial. So even though local currencies are certainly allowed to continue to exist within the Roman Empire, they have a very intense vested interest in making sure that it's regularized, that it's you know, monitored, that it's, you know, that it's fair, that it's equal, that it's easy more than anything to engage in trade and, and, and commerce. So that's one reason. And then the simple, you know, the simple fact is that um, coins are an extraordinarily important piece of technology. It's one of the really great things about uh, studying ancient coinage is it's one of the few pieces of technology that's relatively unchanged. When we look at uh, this little piece of you know, technology that's existed since uh, the 7th, early 6th century BC, to us, it's, it's changed a bit, but not that much. It's certainly something that's instantly recognizable to those of us uh, looking at it 2,000 years later, 2,500 years later, however long that distance is between us and the Roman world. So that's one reason. And then the other reason is it takes a lot to destroy a coin. So they, they're certainly the numbers, the production numbers uh, were massive in the Roman world. So that's, you know, unequivocally a big part of it. But the number of things uh, that once a coin is in the ground or it's hidden, it's hoarded, whatever the status, you know, whatever the situation was that led to it ending up in the, the ground in the first place, the number of things once it is in the ground that can actually completely annihilate it, ruin it, make it unrecognizable are relatively few especially when we look at Roman coinage like denarii that are made from silver, the vast majority of places where those would have been lost or deposited, you know, are relatively free of the kinds of elements in the soil that would cause corrosion on a scale that would make it no longer identifiable as a coin. Whereas if you were to find, as sometimes people do, a shipwreck, for instance, Silver coins don't come out of the ocean, you know, coming up looking you know, clean and clear and identifiable very often because of the simple fact that that salt really corrodes. It really intensifies the corrosion process in the silver. Whereas something like a bronze coin, for instance, there we do. You know, that's, uh, you know, there are a number of different soil conditions that can really wreak havoc on the, the survivability of bronze in the ground. But what's really remarkable is when we see the numbers that do survive for us and we consider the fact that this is a small portion of the full population when it was first struck, what we're dealing with is numbers that don't look entirely different from modern production numbers. That when you look at, uh, if you're an American coin collector, for instance, and you look at really pre-1964 you know, silver to cupro-nickel production numbers, you're traditionally in the millions, tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions for larger production years. That's not entirely far off of the mark of what we might expect the Romans to have struck at the height of the empire. We're looking at something like the, the Antonines in that time period. You know, we're definitely striking circulating numbers on a very large scale. One of the issues, though, that, that sort of affects their survivability is, well, they're, they're a number, meltdowns. So... As uh, economies struggle and, and face the economic challenges and you know, different kinds of political upheaval that come with that, debasement in the ancient world was a regular tool. And if a coin was 100% pure silver, now we're going to recall those old coins that are pure silver, melt them down, recast them, 
alloy them. Now they're 90% silver. So that's the situation we're looking at. If, for instance, we're looking at Roman denarii, really until about the Julio-Claudian period. Prior to that, they were pretty close to pure. I mean, obviously, trace elements and impurities would remain, but they were quite close to pure silver. Whereas when you get to the Julio-Claudian era, they're down to about 90, 95%, somewhere in that area. Again, Nero recalls them, melts them down. We believe this is what, what happened. Part of the reason why we have so few coins from the reigns of either Caligula or Claudius, an early part of Nero's reign, recalls them, melts them down, debases them a little bit further. Not much, but enough. And it stays at that for about 100 years, that level, 85 to 90%, somewhere in there. So very similar, in fact, to modern coinage, um, the silver coinage of the United States, for instance, was 90% silver, 10% copper. And then, of course, once we hit the crisis of the third century, it depends on which year you're in. It can go from 90% pure to 5% pure. So <laughs> there's an urgent need for that silver and sort of stretch that silver out. So that's a big portion of why, you know, certain... Uh, certain time periods are poorly represented in survivability, and ultimately, uh, it's really the only process, other than losing the coin, dropping it in the ground, and waiting for somebody to find it however long after. It's really the only process that uh, would destroy coins. Circulation does, to some extent, and we'll see those in a number of coins that we know were dropped. They're heavily worn, but still you know, quite well intact. We can say that that was a coin that was in circulation for a good period of time. But yeah, outside of that, uh, it takes a lot to destroy a coin. So there is still a lot of them. In the same way that uh, people find, you know, American coins from all periods of our history all the time in the ground. And, you know, they're, they're still out there. So one of the most uh, fun descriptions I've seen of finding and turning up coins was apparently there was a little town on the east coast of, of Britain that... Um, was, we believe, a Roman settlement in the 1st and 2nd century. Well, the farmers were, were turning them up so frequently. It's very similar to what we find in, in North America, where when you plow the fields, you let it sit for a little bit. If it rains, uh, if there are arrowheads or anything like that in the ground, they'll be right on the surface. They'll be instantly able to pick them up and spot them. Well, they had that same thing happen with coins. People were finding coins at such a regular rate, Roman coins at such a regular rate, that there were local pubs that would accept them as currency. This is in the 19th century. You could pay for your beer in Roman currency. So it was still accepted. They were happy to take them. So it's, uh, it's a fascinating story that, uh, you know, there were certain places that there was just enough commerce, enough drops and things like that, that they would turn them up. And, you know, as you're plowing your fields, you see a little, you know, green speck in the ground. And, ah, I know what that is. And off you go. That is so cool. I would love to be able to go to like my local business and just be like, here, I found this ancient coin in the ground. Are you, will you accept this currency? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, just it's like it was uh, thousands of years ago. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's quite remarkable when you think about the fact that you could buy a, buy a pint at your pub uh, in the 19th century with this uh, ancient coin that you turned up in your plow field. Sort of that little bonus for doing your tilling, I suppose. I also think you said something so incredibly fascinating that I had never thought about before, and that is coins as technology. Yeah. Could you expound upon that just a little bit more? Because I think of coins as like currency, like just mm -hmm. this thing that we use to represent something else. 
but not as a form of technology. Because I think like computers, cell phones as technology, but I guess, I mean, it is, it is, it's a form of, of technology. It's something that's helping us do something else. Exactly. Well, this is, this is one of the things that, uh, this is one of the ways that I like to especially think about it, encourage people to think about it simply because as someone who works on uh, ancient Greek literature, especially, it gets us back to that pre-monetary period very quickly, very easily. Uh, so when we're in Homer, we're talking about trade and commerce. How is that happening? It's happening with goods. It's happening with very real things. It's cattle. It's you know sheep. It's armor in certain cases. So the ability to have a piece of metal stand in for that is very literal, in fact. We're, we're talking about Roman currency uh, for a long time in the ancient Roman world. We know now linguistically that it's not true. But um, pecunia is is one of the Latin terms for cash, you know, money. Well, the Roman historian and, you know, natural historian, linguist, you know, kind of jack-of-all-trades varro defined that term is originating in, in its etymology as being directly related to the Roman word for sheep, pecos. That each of these, you know, this coinage is really just representing a individual sheep. And in fact, when we look at some of our earliest forms of Roman coinage, they're great big chunks of bronze. They're not the coins that we think of. They're big sheets of bronze. Now, of course, when you trade this and engage with this, it's essentially a stand-in for that value. You know, this is the value, rough value of a sheep in bronze. You pay someone that, and they're going to take it to a smith. That smith is going to craft it into something else. That's the first stage of this sort of indirect economy that we're not dealing with, I want that, you, you know, that you have, you want that that I have, let's make a deal. This is the sort of first intermediate step, in the Roman world at least. So the connection between Pecus and Pecunia to them seemed very clear, especially as they still had certain examples of these, um, so called them ice formatum shaped currency. So they would be shaped like a cow or a sheep. Or something. Now we know that in actual fact, it's probably just they're a sign of the actual merchant that was making those particular forms, a way to distinguish, kind of like our mint marks and things like that. But for them, it was a very real, a very tangible thing that connected those things. So moving from that, where you have these very large objects that symbolically represent something else, to a much smaller piece of silver that represents essentially, essentially the divisions of a day's labor. That a denarius in the Roman world is a representation of a day's labor, more or less. Then you can divide that into six or you know, whatever parts you're looking at, depending on which culture and society you're in. That symbolic representation of moving from very real thing, you're paid in sheep, you're paid in wool, you're paid in you know, different types of uh, materials that you can then create the things that you need, to you're paid in this that then you can then use for, for anything else. Yeah, it is quite um, it is quite significant in human, you know, monetary and economic development that we make that step, and then the next step to move to you know really crafting pieces that have you know intense symbolism, political meaning. It's something that we don't really think about much as Americans, I would say, because our coins are very static. I would encourage our listeners today to think about when the last time we had a very different well. The penny's the best example. When was the last time did we had a different image on the front of our pennies? If you go back to 1909, it's been the same image since 1909. 
Now, we, with the quarters, we did just have a different image, but it's still George Washington. It's been George Washington since 1932. Jefferson since 38, right? It's been very static. Some might say boring. Not at all in the Roman world. But if you're in the Republic, it's a fascinating thing that with the Roman Republic, you're not looking at a statement. It's not, you know, Philadelphia and Denver and San Francisco striking the coins by the agency of the United States or, you know, it's not Rome and Apulia and all of these other places striking for the Rome. It's individual minters. It's families that are directly close, you know, close to senatorial power or actually involved in it. They have a license from the Senate to mint and strike coins. And so it's private mints, essentially, that are working with the state in this time period. Now, obviously, once Augustus you know, changes uh, things a bit into the, you know, the Principate and the Empire, what we start to see emerge then is real direct imperial control and authority. One, there's an interest in controlling the political messages that are on coins. Two, making sure that, you know, people aren't getting precious materials and then using that for their own interests to undermine the imperial project, which we definitely see a lot of. This is a real struggle during Augustus's rise to power, both in terms of what we see Mark Anthony doing in Egypt, what we see Sextus Pompey doing in Sicily, his, his real rivals that he's fighting with for power are very effective at using coins and the political messages on them against him. So he's quite keen to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But prior to this point, it's families. It's families competing with each other. So if you have someone who is of Sabine ancestry, this little town that was right close to Rome, you're going to have images on your coins that represent that, that really highlight that patriotically, you know, the Sabine contribution to Roman history. If you claim, as Julius Caesar did, to be a descendant from Venus, well, what do you do? You have a reverse with Aeneas and Anchises with an obverse of Venus, right? You highlight your family in very real and meaningful ways to insert themselves into these conversations. So it's a much more interesting, it's a much more exciting, one might say, relationship to this technology because it's always changing. It's always different, especially during the period of the Republic. Now, again, when we get to the empire, it's similar but different. That is, individual emperors are going to be having a whole series. You know, they'll have a whole series of different types of images and political messages that you'll have expressed and, and celebrated. But, um, you know, they're going to reflect the contributions of that particular emperor. So if he's trying to emphasize his piety and his investment in the religious sphere, they're going to have religious implements on the reverses. If they're trying to emphasize, as Hadrian and Trajan both do, their civic contributions in the form of really investing in roads and building, uh, you know, infrastructure. You know, one of the most famous examples that we have from Trajan is the Via Traiania uh, reverse that has a, a sort of you know, personification of the road that he has just refinanced, you know, next to a big wheel and, you know, Via Traiania in great big uh, letters directly underneath it. So it is, it is a very powerful and important form of technology in the ways that it can tell us messages about ourselves and you know, the ways that a society can reflect on its contributions, the way leaders can, can reflect on their contributions. So yeah, I do think and encourage people to think of it as you know, a small form of technology. Now again, it's a form of technology that is 
a bit crystallized. It's not changed that much in the last 2,500 years. But nonetheless, it is an important and very significant transition in form of technology that really did allow us to change the way that we think about work, about value and all these kinds of things. So, yeah. That's incredibly fascinating. And just to think about, it really did revolutionize the world in a way because I couldn't imagine, you know, the History Center paying me in sheep. Exactly. What would you do with those sheep? I mean, how am I going to do with all of these sheep? Yeah, yeah, I have to take care of the sheep and, and uh, you know, I yeah. have to find someone else who wants the sheep and then will give me corn and... Exactly. It's a headache. It's a headache. It allows an economy to scale in ways that it had never been able to before. And, uh, you know, this is exactly when we look at the places where it was first implemented and where it really expanded so quickly. It was in the ancient empires of the Near East that were our first documented coinage came from the kingdom of Lydia, uh, which is in modern Turkey, and then spread very quickly, rapidly to other parts of the Near East. So, for instance, the Persians that immediately conquered or very quickly conquered um, the kingdom of Lydia, Lydia after the invention of coinage immediately adopted it and it spread. And this is how it spread to areas as far away as China and then areas as far away eventually as, you know, Gadiz in Spain and both just the entirety of the Eurasian landmass in Africa instantly saw the utility of it that allowed economies to scale, and especially in those ancient empires, really scale, became a very real marker and way to preserve wealth. And also, it's an interesting thing when we think about these ancient empires and the way wealth and mass was, or excuse me, wealth was amassed and preserved, it was done so in the form of objects by and large, oppressive, precious objects of gold and silver. Once coinage was created, you could melt those down and turn them into coin, uh, which is something we regularly see. In fact, when the Athenians built the Parthenon, this was one of the great arguments for it, that there, the gold adornments that, was, that were affixed to the temple itself, Pericles argues, well, if we're ever in crisis, we just melt them down and strike coin. If we need that money, it's, it's a preserver. So we see both that, you know, the, the, the temples and complexes preserve and have this wealth that, if need be, can be mobilized and struck into coin and can be allotted to, again, scale up the economy and the economic or political or military needs. So, yeah, it is it is quite remarkable when we think about what it allowed allowed us to do and how it allowed us to work and change work rather than being directly tied in. You know, if you get paid in sheep, you get paid in wool. You're going to have to be a teller. You're going to have to be a farmer. You're going to have to be something that's reflective of those things and build that flock or whatever it happens to be. You're very tied to whatever that monetary value you're creating is. Whereas with coinage or money in general, it allows us to really change that relationship. So you mentioned it uh, a couple of times, saying this coins are struck, which makes me think of a blacksmith with you know a hammer and, and metal. So could you tell us a little bit about how, in general, Roman coins were made? Because I know there were lots of different coins and uh, different sizes and shapes and whatnot, and I'm sure that they had some different ways of being made. But in general, how was that process? Yeah, no, this is this is an excellent question. It's really something that we we don't tend to think about it because we you know have enjoyed you know mechanical production of coinage. But it's amazing how late the mechanical production of coinage really showed up on the stage. It really wasn't something that even when you look at mass producers of coinage in the you know the early modern period, they're still being hand struck as recently as the early 1700s. 
So it's really not until, you know, the early to mid 1700s that the machines are created that can mass produce these things in meaningful ways. The United States, uh, you know, U.S. Mint for the first five or six years of its existence was still kind of a weird hybrid between a machine and when the machine inevitably broke down, you know, hand striking. So it's one of the things that makes early American coinage incredibly exciting. There's a lot of variety because no two are the same. Before that, though, uh, you know, going right back to the time of Croesus the Lydian, what we see instead is, well, a number of, number of things. So you have an anvil, essentially. And you say, like a blacksmith, that's a great analogy because that is very much what the action is like. So you have what's called an anvil side. This is going to be the most important image of the two. So for an imperial Rome, it's going to be the emperor's face. You know, that's the one you, you want to get right. You, you know, that's going to be the most important. Right? So the reverse image will be on what we call the die side. So you have a die, which is very much like a chisel, and an anvil. You put those things, you know, side by side. Well, when you have uh, a coin in the coinage process, which is a coin here, you can imagine it's a blank, you know. So they come out as a blank. There's no image on it. It's just a raw piece of silver, gold, whatever it happens to be. You set this, you know, this piece of metal, we call it a planchette, on the anvil side. You put that die onto it so it's flat. There's no space. There's no wiggle. There's no wobble. And with one hard strike of a hammer, that's it. Hard as you can. And you can imagine the arms on these guys. They must have been huge. You know, they must have been massive. But that's how it was done. Just one single strike, boom, done. Next one. And that's why one of the, the things that makes... That's one of the things that makes studying ancient coins really fascinating, is that the anvil lasts much, much longer. We estimate that, you know, a solid anvil, well-struck, well-created, uh, relatively uh, lightly worn through the process, could strike, you know, upward of 15,000 coins, you know, 15 to 20,000 coins, somewhere in, somewhere in that range, we have to think. Whereas the die side's not going to have nearly as much life, because it takes the majority of that force, thinking about physics or that involved. All of that momentum is being transferred from our hammer, our arm hammer, into the die, and the die into the, the planchette. So that anvil is going to be a lot more stable. That's why we put the most you know, important image on that. But the dies, we then can do something really cool. When we look at, if we have a large number of coins surviving, what we can do is we can match up images and say, well, this has die image one, and anvil image one. Uh, so those must have been the earliest in the set. Well, now that die must have broken because we still see image one on the obverse, but the reverse is slightly different. We see the lettering is different. The image is slightly different. It's not the same. And we see, you know, this one. And then, so we can basically chart out the life of the anvil side and the die side by how many of these we find in a population. We see a lot, we can say, well, this must have lasted a long time. Who knows? Might have struck as many as 30, 40, 50,000. Who knows? Where it's not as many, must not have lived that long. We also still find, archaeologists have done an amazing job of you know, finding some of these, these actual dyes. We do have a number of them that survive. So if you ever visit the Acropolis Museum in Athens or the Agora Museum in Athens, the statement for Athens was right in the Agora, just down the hill from the Acropolis. And they found a number of these dyes right there, right where the old ancient mint was. So you can still see them. They're preserved. They're remarkable. So you can still see them and get a sense of 
what that technology was like, what that process was like. But it's tremendously useful for us because there are some very rare cases where we can actually match a die to coins that we found. So that must have been one. So it can be very exciting in that respect. But yeah, thinking of a blacksmith and an anvil striking striking out horseshoes or whatever uh, a farrier would have done quite recently. Again, you know, well into the 20th century. So now that we have all of these coins, how were they used within Roman society? Yeah. I think to answer that question, it really depends on how we we think about them. So in terms of spending, in terms of the the commerce side, exactly like we use them today. You buy bread with them. You buy, you know, your your necessities with them, you know, of course. So that's one way. But in terms of, if you think about the larger economic monetary system, it's very different in the fact that there are not banks. Banks do not exist in this world. So if you're saving money, if you're looking to make a big purchase, you have a number of things you can do, namely hoard them. So if we think of our our parents, you know, coin jars or something like that, that's a pretty good stand-in for an ancient hoard. Usually just a pot, maybe like this one or that one, uh, that you just fill with coins and put them somewhere. Now, it needs to be safe. You can't let anybody just know where your hoard hoard of coins is. The problem is, if something happens to me, if I have a heart attack and die, my hoard is hidden somewhere in the house, my parents or my, my children might not ever find it. My wife might not even know. So then what happens to it? Someone finds it 2,000 years later. So this is one of the ways that we get these coins is in these personal hoards, but they didn't have banks. So that's why we have so many. I think people regularly ask, well, why are they always finding hoards? Was there really that many rich people? It wasn't necessarily that. It's just, this is how you save. This was your savings. And it did happen quite frequently that, you know, we think about mortality rates and we think about the number of things that could end a person's life. People are going to keep that, that savings quite secret in the same way that we're very secretive of our pin numbers and things like that very reasonably so people happen to know you have a large hoard somewhere in the back left hand corner of your property they're going to start digging at night yeah and then there goes your savings so they're going to be very serious about making sure that very few people have access to that information but then that means it can be lost very easily as well so that's one way that's different the other thing is you know dealing with what we, we call bullion so this is something that I regularly see, you know, people who are interested in the hobby of ancient coin collecting kind of comment is, you know, it's always remarkable when you see how much better the condition of, say, gold coins is than you know, not only silver, but uh, but especially, you know, bronze coins. You know, why are they always so worn down, those bronze coins, even you know, the, the silver coins and then gold coins are pristine? Well, the answer is those are really more bullion. Those aren't, and those aren't necessarily spending. Now, obviously you can spend them, but those are more the type of currency that you use for the purchase of land, the purchase of a carriage, the purchase of a horse, very large purchases. They're not coins that you're going to be circulating and spending as regularly and frequently as, you know, your bronze, your bronze, you know, whatever it happens to be. If you're in Greece, you know, Kalkos piece, or if you're in Rome, you know, your, uh, your sesterci or uh, your ass or, or whatever the smaller unit you're using is. Those are your daily spending. That's what you're using to buy your bread. That's what you're using to buy your clothes, your, your daily necessities. So those are turning hands a lot. Whereas gold and silver, because they represent a much greater value, those are the hoarded coins. Those are the ones that you keep and you save and you wait until either you buy a piece of property or you buy some large purchase. 
So that means that they're going to be much better preserved because they're passing hands much less frequently. And they're also much more likely to find in those hordes that, that still survive for us. In terms of the, her the hordes, this is one of our best sources of knowledge and information about how these coins worked and circulated because we can see in a hoard about how old the coins can be. How long is a coin in circulation? It's always the big question because, you know, when we look at our coins, you know, it's one of the questions of why do we still find wheat pennies pretty regularly in our change, but not ever anything, you know, before 1964 when it comes to, you know, quarters, nickels, or quarters, dimes, half dollars, if we still use those. Well, the simple answer is we, we switch from silver to clad in 64. So that's a clear stop. People recognize the fact that those silver coins have more value. So I'm not going to spend that. I'm not going to put that into circulation. Whereas copper is copper. There's no difference between a copper. Well, there's, there is since 1982 with having pennies anyways. But um, you know, there's still not enough that we're, we're regularly hoarding pre-1982 pennies. So you know, there's no real difference other than the images that's on them. But we can see, certainly gotten some in my change in the past, you know, pennies that have been in circulation for roughly 100 years, uh, you know, heavily worn, that, you know, they're neat, they're, they're old, but uh, in terms of their actual value, they don't have what we call a numismatic premium, so people are probably not collecting them because they're super rare. Then there's no real monetary incentive to pull those out of circulation, so they stay. The same is true with the ancient world, that, you know, these coins tend to stay in circulation for a very long time. And um, ultimately what we see is, you know, when we have these hordes, we can see the population. We can see how quickly recent coins get into the population, about how long it takes for a coin that's just been struck to actually be acquired by an average person. And once it is in circulation, how long it stays. Because as much as it's, it's you know, the one that we're, uh, you know, in the, in the modern world, I think more interested in is how old can we get, you know, a coin in circulation? So you have a coin that's 130 years old, you really get excited because it's a rare occurrence. There are a lot of collectors. In the ancient world, it's the opposite. It takes a long time for new coins to get into circulation because there aren't central banks. There aren't banks that are saying, you need, you know, you need cash, you need money, you know, give us this and we'll exchange this for this. And then you get coins, you get things to circulate. That money, we think, and we still actually don't really know exactly how it happened. How did the money get from the state striking and producing these coins to the hands of people spending it? That's a real question. We don't have great answers for it. And we have indirect answers, certainly. A stipendium or something like that from, if you're in the army, for instance, you are paid that money regularly. So that's a fast, immediate way. But certainly it's not just the army that's, that's doing it. So... We have to think that the local contracts, you know, on city levels to build and do things, that's putting new coins into circulation. They're being paid directly by the government to build roads, to, in some cases, bake bread. You know, there, there's a direct relationship. There's a very deep interest on the part of the state to make sure that those daily necessities are met. And ultimately, you know, the money is being distributed that way. That's a good way. You know, it's a good indirect way. But you can't just go to a bank and say, here's this much value. I want to trade, you know, 20 denarii for you know, an Arius or something like that. That exchange rate, that exchange has to happen on a person-to-person -person level. So it does take quite a while. I think some of the estimates suggest it's as much as 5 to 15 years before, you know, an emperor, once they've assumed power, before their coinage is dominant form. 
So if you have an emperor that's only in power for three or four months, as is the case in 69, it's going to take a long time. And there's going to be really intense interest on the part of, you know, the successor who, you know, took power from that person to not pull those back, restrike them. Right. So this is one of the places where we see some very rare issues that really are wonderful displays in museums because they are so rare and they are so reflective of a very crucial historical moment. So that's that's one of the more exciting, you know, most exciting because they're super rare and then you know, can plug us right into that moment. And that's one of the other things that's so incredible about ancient coinage is that it really does you know, connect us to the ancient past in an immediate way. And that is just a perfect segue into our next question because uh, here at the History Center, we just had our When in Rome Homeschool Day and one of the stations was Roman coins and the kids, they got to hold a coin from the ancient past in their hand and you could just see it in their eyes going like, whoa, like I have gotten to interact with the past today in a very tangible way. And I know that you also use those in your classroom. So why do you believe or what do you believe the benefit of teaching with historic objects is? I love this question and I, I love talking about it. I love, I love getting people to discuss it because it is, uh, I think it's such an incredibly important one. So it's always a difficult thing. You know, it's a very difficult thing that we have to consider the balance between the historical significance of an object and the you know, intense interest we want to express to make sure that that object's not damaged, not harmed, not lost. It's an extremely important responsibility we have. So I do want to you know, front load what I say there. So it is extremely important, I think, that we do that work. And of course, you know, in the line of work you're in, you know intensely about this, no doubt. And, and it, even more so in the case of the ancient world, where you know, there, there isn't a lot that survives for us. Fortunately, in the case of coins, they are a technology, as I said, that was so widespread, so diffuse. These are pieces that were meant to be circulated. They were meant to be used and engaged with. So they're hardy. They're tough. It takes a long time to inflict any kind of damage whatsoever, because this is exactly what they were meant to do. So for me, at least, coins are a perfect medium to help people engage with the past, because the damage you can inflict on a coin is minuscule to virtually non-existent. So that's one reason that they're such a great tool. But this is, you know, I think one of the, the most important aspects of this for me, uh, sort of on a personal level, as someone who grew up in rural upstate New York, we didn't have a lot of opportunity to access the past in this way, especially not the ancient past. It always seemed a very distant thing learning about the ancient past, I mean, certainly some of us can conceptualize it and enjoy it in a sort of conceptual, purely conceptual level, but it's hard. It was a long, long time ago. There's a huge, vast ocean of time between us and them. And yet, as people, as human beings, we're not that different. So to have a piece of technology that's so similar to one that we use to this very day, that impacted people's lives in such a similar way to how it impacts it, today, use, spend, need, money, it's the same. It connects us very immediately, very tangibly to those people who lived so much longer ago than we can even easily conceptualize. And it makes it accessible in ways that so many of us can't afford to just spring to Europe and visit the Acropolis Museum or the Vatican Museum. Of course, these collections are amazing. They're wonderful best ways to see the ancient world is to go to the places where they were. 
but that's not an option a lot of us have, and certainly not one that I had as a young man. And so having the opportunity to touch something that has been in existence that long, to connect to the person who used and spent it and engaged with it, it makes the past very real in a very quick way. And we know, we know certainly from, from neuroscience that um, this is an important part of how we learn. We, we need that tactile engagement. Uh, it helps us to cement things. We know that there are three levels to mnemonics and learning. Uh, that we hear things, we see things, right? iconic representation, but the haptic, the engagement, the tactile element is so crucial. Being able to engage with something on all three levels really helps make it real for us. So as amazing as museums are and the great work they do to inspire, it's always a little bit incomplete until you can feel that, until you can engage with it and really, wow, this is real. These people did live, they did exist. So for me, the opportunity to engage with these, whether it's in a classroom setting or as you've done, is, is just so crucial. It's such an important part because it is important that we remember that these are actual people who lived, who, who struggled, who, who faced so many of the things that we, we do in our daily lives. It really helps us to feel connected to humanity, I think. Because also, if we can have empathy for and connect to people who lived 2,500 years ago, What's our excuse for, you know, not doing so with, you know, the people who are in this world right now, who are going through the same things we are. So it's a really important message and an important tool. And I think it's one of the single most important things that I found in teaching about the ancient world is that this is one of the most powerful tools that we have for building empathy. Because when we see that people who lived and died and struggled 2,500 years ago are virtually just like us with the exception of, you know, the nice modern technologies we have. You know, these are great. But on a personal level, on a fundamental level, who we are as people, as animals, is virtually unchanged. So it's important to keep in mind. And coins are a great way to connect with that and to remember that. Every time I put together a different impression or a different program that we do a lot of living history for here at the History Center, it surprises me how much people just don't change. You know, we all have our basic needs and our basic needs are the same throughout all of history. You know, yeah. we need to sleep, we need to eat, we need, you know, relationships with other people. Absolutely. And some of those, you know, where we sleep, what we eat, you know, they might change a little bit, but it's the core, it, it's all there. Exactly, that's exactly right. I mean, for me, it's it's absolutely striking when we read, uh, ancient poetry or something from, from the 5th century BC or 6th century BC, and they're talking about their lives, their experiences in ways that, you know, history history is great, and it's extremely important to understand the big narratives. It just doesn't. It doesn't talk about the personal level and the sort of personal experience. When we read lyric poetry, especially, you know, what I work on, we see those voices coming through. We see those emotions coming through. We see that experience coming through. And it is incredibly moving that... We are so fundamentally unchanged in 2,000 years, 1,500 years, whatever it happens to be. It's really important not to lose sight of that. That is that is the significance. That is, for me, at least the really important significance of, of the past is that these are these are lives that were lived in, you know, whether they were rich or poor or whatever, they're important to remember. They're important to preserve and to respect and admire and keep those stories alive. So it's what, uh, great work that you're doing. Thank you. We, we try to preserve and share our region's history and then also to be a pathway to history education 
for our community. So we like to say we are based in Northeast Georgia, but we are we are a center for history. And if that means ancient Rome, then so be it. We are we will uh, we are doing a presentation about ancient Rome because, like you said, not everyone has the ability to go to ancient Rome to experience that history. Yeah. So we you know try to bring pieces of ancient Rome here. And one of the really I think great ways that we were able to do that is through those coins because that was physical objects that were in Rome that were in use here and almost do like a, a pop-up little um, mini exhibit, if you will. Yeah. And now I, I have to ask you, because we had a couple people ask us as they were looking at these coins and holding these coins, what would that translate to being valued at today? And we didn't have a great answer because it's, well, they were looking at coins from all across the Roman Republic and Empire. So it was like, well, that changes within itself. Yes. And then also our economy is so different than ancient Rome that we're like, yeah. we can't just type it into an inflation calculator. So I was wondering if you had a, perhaps a better answer for some of those people who were wondering that at our event. Absolutely. No, and it's, it is an absolutely, you know, fascinating and important question to ask because it really depends on what we're looking at, which we're looking at. But just, just for instance, so. Uh, in the Roman world, the denarius is really the standard unit. It's the one that is circulated most widely. It's the one that is, you know, this is the standard bill, you know, that they're using in their their spending. So if we're thinking about it in the terms in terms of modern spending behaviors and things like that, we generally say that the, a single denarius is roughly the value of a day's worth of labor. So. If we say that roughly a day's worth of labor in, in the modern world is about $100 a day, somewhere in that range, roughly, give or take, you know, $25, $30, $40, somewhere in that range, that's about the spending power of that denarius, something that it's not a huge quantity, but that would buy your groceries, you know, about groceries for the week, roughly, let's say. So that's that's the way to think of it. So that's this the small little piece of, of silver can do that. Bronze, you know, the bronze coins, uh, as I said, those are the ones that you're spending, you're using for, you know, your daily stuff. So if uh, you need bread, if you need wine, if you need, you know, those basics that you're going to be buying more frequently, that's going to be one of those small pieces. So if we're thinking about it in modern terms, just roughly, if we say denarius is worth somewhere in the area of 75 to to $100, whereas, you know, those smaller units, you know, they can break down from anywhere between, you know, 20, 10, 5, 1. To the very small bronze pieces and uh, as i'm sure some of your members saw they got very small that an oval for instance is tiny it's tiny tiny little piece of silver because this is before they're even using bronze as a coin you know they finally catch on that you know actually these tiny little pieces of silver are not that practical they're very easy to lose let's stop doing that this is why we find so many of those in absolutely pristine condition they're lost everywhere all the time because they're tiny so once they catch on to the fact that bronze is actually much more useful for those small, those small spending units, uh, you know, you have a true bimetallic system or even a trimetallic system for some cases, then we're talking, you know, small, small quantities. So, you know, roughly, you know, what we think of as 50 cents, dollar, somewhere in that range. So, yeah, it's again, it's it's hard to make any exact you know calculations, but the buying power is you know, roughly, I would say, would break down like that. The smaller bronze units are going to represent a couple of dollars, a dollar, two dollars, somewhere in that area. You know, a silver piece like a denarius is going to be, you know, it's a larger, larger bill, essentially. So 50 to 100, somewhere in that range. And then, of course, a gold, 
a gold coin, so an Arius. We didn't have any of those, unfortunately, to give you. That's going to be, you know, that's going to be a much larger purchase. So that would be, you're thinking about something along the lines of maybe, you know, an affordable uh, used car or something like that. That it's going to be that much more, uh, 16 to 25 times the value of that denarius, roughly. So just one of those is going to have about that buying power. So two, three, or four would be about what you'd use to buy a new car. So when I say that those were bullion points that you save and you keep for those really big purchases, that's why, because it does have that much more value to it. And you can imagine when people had those, they were very, very cautious and didn't tend to just drop them unless uh, they were having an incredibly bad day. If I lost one, I would be having a bad day. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That would that would be a horrible month, two, three, and four. That's a long time to recuperate that. So they, they took it very seriously. And, and this is also one of the things that's worth pointing out. This is one of the reasons why we so frequently see coins with holes in them, is that um, you don't want to take risks with them. So if you, if you drill and core a hole into it, you, you'd run a string through it. And then you keep that string and you keep those coins strung together to make sure that you did not drop them. You did not lose them. It's too much value. It's too much work that's represented by that to make sure you do not want to even run the risk of that going anywhere other than in your pocket or within your range. So yeah, that's that's absolutely kind of mind-boggling when we think about one little piece of coinage. And yet, you know, when we think about modern uh, silver and, and gold uh, equivalents, that's that's roughly about the same. The, you know, an ounce of gold currently is in the area of $2,000. It's a lot of money for a relatively small coin. So it's it's surprisingly unchanged when you look at the sort of rough values that, it, you know, silver, an ounce of silver is $25, something like that, whereas gold is nearly you know, 10 times that. It's about the same division in the ancient world as well. And of course, it depends on what time you're in. It's going to range, you know, silver's going to be worth more or less, or gold's going to be worth more or less. But um, but yeah, the rough spending power is, is surprisingly unchanged in that respect. So it's kind of an interesting bit of historical coincidence or, you know, demonstration that we're still maybe more reliant on gold for value and silver than value than we, than we recognize. So do you have any final thoughts about Roman coins that you would like to share to wrap up this podcast? Well, I would encourage everybody to to explore them, look into them, uh, you know, visit the museum, see them for yourselves. They're absolutely fascinating. And uh, whether we're looking at uh, ancient coins or modern coins, uh, you know, connecting to people who lived 2,000 years ago or 200 years ago or 30 years ago, it's important and it's valuable and uh, it's exciting to, to hold a little piece of history in your hand and to be able to engage with it. So definitely take that opportunity. Then Again is a production of the Northeast Georgia History Center in Gainesville, Georgia. Our podcast is edited by media producer Guada Rodriguez. Our digital and on-site programs are made possible by the Ada May Ivester Education Center. Please join us next week for another episode of Then Again.